Welcome to Veterans in Academics. This podcast highlights people and topics where the veteran experience and academia overlap. Join your host, Dr. Luke McLeese, in this groundbreaking content. Each week, we explore new stories, topics for you. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Veterans and Academics. I'm Dr. Luke McLeese, your host for the show. And today we have a very special guest, Mr. Jared Lyon, who is the National President of Student Veterans of America. Jared, thank you so much for being on this show. Dr. McLeese, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Jared, uh, I think we're going to have to title this show Young and Powerful. Um, because you're our, our young and powerful gal. <laughs> but it's, so I know we're going to have a lot of listeners who are familiar with you, who have seen your face, seen your, your promos for NatCon, maybe been to NatCon and seen you in person. Uh, and then there are going to be those who have not heard you yet. And so for those, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, sir? Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, I serve as the national president and CEO of Student Veterans of America. Uh, we're headquartered here in downtown Washington, D.C. Uh, as an organization, uh, we were founded back in 2008, honestly, as the grassroots effort to help pass uh, what became the post 9-11 GI Bill. And we grew to support uh, just over 1,500 SBA chapters in all 50 states, U.S. territories, and then three countries overseas. Where there is a current SVA chapter, we have just over 750,000 student veterans pursuing their education on campuses globally. Um, and then just by way of a quick brief introduction on myself, I enlisted in the world's finest Navy in August of 2001. Uh, so I actually joined a peacetime military. And while I was in basic training at boot camp up at Great Lakes, Illinois, the world changed with the events of September 11th, right. uh, not just for me, but for millions of our sisters and brothers in arms in our generation. And then uh, after that, I pursued uh, an associate's degree while going to school at night, working in defense contracting, uh, started a, a small little business uh, at one point. I worked in Major League Baseball for a little while, uh, and then I went to Florida State to finish my undergrad. And eventually after Florida State, where I got very involved with my SVA chapter uh, on campus, went up to Syracuse University to pursue a graduate degree. And then in October of 2014, I uh, came to SVA originally as our development guy. Uh, and then in 2016, uh, I accepted the offer as our full-time uh, national president and CEO. And I've been doing that role ever since. Awesome. Awesome. You've been on the move, my friend. I love it. I love it. I love to hear stories like this. So, Jared, so, okay, your, your time in the Navy, your experience as a veteran and as, as a veteran in higher education, and now someone who is really at the forefront of, you know, an organization that affects so much policy in the intersection of higher education and student veteran realm. Can you tell our audience, we always ask this, these two questions from everyone, can you tell us what you see as something that veterans are doing well currently in higher education? Yeah, I love this question. It is a hard question to answer for me because honestly, Luke, veterans are doing a lot well. Absolutely. Um, almost doing a shocking amount well. Uh, but if I could narrow it down uh, to sort of one thing, what I think veterans are doing well is that they are pursuing 
higher education. And let me just sort of shape that for you. So at least as we can track it by federal benefits that have supported veterans in higher education, we can go back just, uh, just about 76 years to 1944 uh, with the passage of the Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944, what we would refer to as uh, the original GI Bill. Right. Now, the original GI Bill, we associate the GI Bill with education nowadays, uh, but the original GI Bill was... It, it offered a multitude of things. Um, in advance of a Department of Veterans Affairs, uh, it was really the way that the federal government would planned to bring home the largest at the time generation of veterans, nearly 16 million of them, of our sisters and brothers in arms that served in Europe and the Pacific. When they came home, that original GI Bill was going to cover a multitude of things um, from housing to unemployment compensation, the farm subsidies, uh, to the ability to start businesses, and also include this idea of education training. Uh, there was a, a gentleman by the name of Harry W. Comary, who is uh, often regarded as the founder of the education portion, right. um, himself a World War I veteran, served in the Army, fought in France, eventually became a national commander of the American Legion. And he really believed in this idea that we should, as a federal government, uh, absolutely do what every veteran organization wanted to do back then, which is take care of any individual who had served their country and were in one way or another harmed or made less than by their service. So cover any injuries, health-related issues, or recovery based as uh, sort of the costs of war, the human costs of war. But he also had this idea that those individuals, those young women and men who go off to serve their country, uh, they put everything in their civilian life on hold to serve their nation. And even though, yeah, they're gonna get a paycheck and some benefits uh, that go along with that service, they're really dedicated to the service of the nation. And so when they return from that and they take off the cloth of their nation, his belief was that we should try to restore them to the economic opportunity that they would have had if they did not serve their country as quickly as possible. And he believed in the power of education to be able to do that. And so he added the notion in the original GI Bill that education would be included. And so if we look at that original generation of GI Bill users, the World War II generation, nearly 49% of them use the GI Bill wow. to head back to college and wow. pursue their education. Well, then fast forward. Let's look at Korea. Uh, Korea, almost 54%. Vietnam, almost 60%. Actually, the first generation of veterans since World War II that ever saw a decline in ed post-secondary education pursuit is the Gulf War era of veterans. Only just above a third of them pursued education. You got to give them some credit. When they separated from the military in the 90s, the economy was doing great. Right. Uh, there were a lot of opportunities to pursue uh, a career that didn't require post-secondary education. But then let's fast forward to our generation, the post-9-11 generation. Fully 72% of us have already achieved our educational goals. We are not only the most educated subsect of the veteran population, those of us in the post-9-11 era, Honestly, we're the most educated subsect of the U.S. population, uh, given that, you know, not quite 36% of society pursues a post-secondary education or graduates at least with one. Right. And so what veterans are doing right uh, that I can answer very succinctly is to say that we are pursuing post-secondary education and we're pursuing post-secondary education better than any generation of veterans that has ever come before us and higher than that of civilians who have never served in the U.S. military. So we're going to college, and that is ultimately uh, a thing that I could highlight as the thing that we're doing uh, that we're most successful at. 
Absolutely. Okay. So everything you just mentioned, and especially in this time era, right, is absolutely amazing on its own. From World War One, having the, you know, this gentleman from World War One having the insight that, that education was going to be the, the transition glue to, to help people's future, to now that we have more people using it than ever before is amazing. And, you know, I think that's one thing that the general public outside of people like yourself, outside of uh, some people who are doing my position, they don't realize that by and large, the numbers are, we have such large population of veterans of all walks of life, of all backgrounds, doing well in higher education and actually outperforming their peers oftentimes. And, and, and also it should be noted that a lot of the major choices uh, tend to be some of the more demanding you know, quote unquote type of majors that someone, so all of this is just, is, is phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. Now, on the flip side of this question though, Jared, what is something that you see in the landscape that we could all improve upon currently? Yeah, I, this, this is a equally powerful question. So it, it's kind of twofold for me. Um, so just as you mentioned, there is a ton of aggregated data that demonstrate that this population of veterans is outperforming almost every measure of success that, that you could find. One of the challenges, though, is that when we start looking at it, society, uh, over 80% of college professors, employers, um, and just the general public, believe that the majority of veterans didn't graduate high school, let alone go to college. Right. But here's, here's what's crazy, Luke. Nearly 54% of veterans believe that too. Right. And I just gave you the numbers. Over, like Most generation of veterans outperform their civilian counterparts with regard to college pursuit and graduation. And so you know, the, the thing that we're, we're doing coupled with that, that I think isn't as good, as you mentioned with major choice, you're absolutely right, the top three majors for this generation that they graduate with. And the reason I say graduate is because sometimes it's like, you know, what you start with isn't always what you finish with. Right, what they right. graduate with in this order, business, science, technology, engineering, and math, and then health-related fields. That accounts for over half of all veterans who graduate with bachelor's degrees are in one of those three majors. Now, what's, what's challenging about all that to be true is that veterans are making really good choices about what they pursue, uh, but we're still not represented as highly um, at highly selective institutions of higher learning. But I, but I want to be clear on that. Veterans are attending every college in America right now. Right. And if you look at it, it's about representation is how I couch these numbers. So veterans make up about four and a half percent of the nationwide student body. So of all students pursuing a degree, we're about four and a half percent. Yet, when you look at the U.S. News and World Report, let's just define it as like the top 200, our enrollment is often below the national representation of student veterans. And so what we need to find a way to do is to try to help veterans believe that they can. Quite frequently, and I've talked to thousands of student veterans over the years, it's the, I wish I would have known, or I wish somebody would have told me but honestly, it's addressing something deep within our core. And I suffer this on a daily basis. It's a phenomena called imposter syndrome. You know, we, we think 
that we are sort of not going to be able to hack it. And so we self-select ourselves out of a lot more opportunities uh, than is possible. So veterans are going to good uh, schools. Don't get it twisted from what I'm saying. But um, to have that opportunity to be more represented at the most selected institutions of higher learning um, can be a veteran help. Also, it's to help shift those in decision-making roles at those selective institutions to understand that veterans are assets to their campus, not deficits with problems to solve. And so it's equally as important for those institutions to sort of see our generation of veterans uh, for the assets that they are to post-secondary education, for the success that they'll have in pursuing academically rigorous programs of study, and to have success rates measured by graduation, GPA, and uh, earned income post-graduation that are all higher than their civilian counterparts, not lower. Absolutely, man. So I love it because the negative really is about access, right? And what you're saying to me is, is if we have the access and we have the access in those institutions who might be a little more selective, then the positive part of the question, how you answer that, is just going to pull over to the negative part. You know, if we if we afford people this opportunity, um, they're going to rise to the occasion. And I believe that, and and I can tell from how you answered it, you believe that uh, because we're already seeing those numbers. You know, it's not it's not a Luke McLeese feeling or a Jared Lyon feeling. We've got piles of data that is published <laughs> that is telling us that's indicating like this is what is going to happen and so so that's beautiful uh that is absolutely amazing because if we can just get that access tipped over to have large numbers of guys and girls in to those institutions things can change and that's that's very powerful that's very powerful i'm so glad you brought that up so Jared, it's very insightful beginning. This is great, but let's, let's go back and let's learn about you, sir. Tell us what, when it comes to your military experience, tell us what, what motivated you to join the Navy. Like you mentioned, you, you joined in the peacetime Navy. What, what was that pull? What was that drive? And then what was your experience like? What did you do? And what was your time like when you served? Yeah, no doubt. So I grew up in Carver, Massachusetts, a small town uh, right next to, to Plymouth where the Pilgrims landed, uh, just right. to give you a geographic reference. My family moved to Orlando, Florida, my senior year in high school. I was a pretty good student. Uh, I'll be honest, I was a better athlete than I was a student. Uh, I was a cross-country track and a wrestler. So those were really the pathways that I saw to college uh, because I'm a first-generation college student. Okay. You know, Both my parents didn't go to college and not a lot of people in my family went to college. And, you know, really, when we start to look at college choice and college selection, I mean, we talk all the time about the military being a quote unquote family business. College is a family business. The vast majority of people right. that go to college, their parents went to college. Exactly. And so opening up access is so important for all students across post-secondary education. And there are a lot of individuals that have been left out of those opportunities. You know, all growing up, uh, the conversation with my parents was always, you know, as it, as it pertained to college was, you can go, you just got to figure out a way to afford to pay for it. And honestly, you know, part of that, uh, I'm not that dissimilar from my generation. Um, survey after survey since 2009 has demonstrated that this post 9-11 generation of enlistees cite as their number one motivation to serve their country is actually the opportunity for an education post-military service. Number two is just that, the opportunity to serve their country. And number three is travel and adventure. 
And so when we start looking at the motivations to serve, I, I'm not all that dissimilar. Um, noting that the Navy would provide me uh, with the GI Bill eventually was really important. But I think it, it goes to a motivation. I grew up in Massachusetts. You know, Massachusetts has uh, among her favorite sons, a gentleman by the name of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Uh, Jack is what people called him where I grew up. Right. Um, all that to say, President Kennedy served in the Navy. And I often butcher the quote, Luke, so you'll have to forgive me. But <laughs> he has a quote that, you know, when any young person is asked what they did to make their life meaningful, can answer with a great degree of pride, I served in the United States Navy. It used to echo with me. Add to that, I was a Cub Scout growing up. And, you know, there was a, an annual uh, trip that we would take uh, to what was called Battleship Cove. It's located in Fall River, Massachusetts. And Battleship Cove had the USS Massachusetts, a big, big old battleship, and then, you know, a whole bunch of other World War II era ships. And you'd go ship to ship as a, as a young kid. And at the end of this tour was always um, a, a U.S. submarine that served in World War II called the USS Lionfish. It kind of got me in the core. My last name's Lion. So right. you know, anything Lion is big in my family. So, you know, I remember, though, every time we would get aboard that submarine, there was something to how different that vessel was to the rest of what I had, at least small and limited exposure to what the Navy did. Submarines just seemed so different. And so when it came time to sort of make that decision after graduation, is it college or the military, due to a good conversation with a recruiter, you know, I viewed an opportunity to serve. I, I was able to enlist on an open submarine contract, which basically meant that I did not have, uh, you know, in the Marine Corps, you'd call it an MOS. We call it a rating in the Navy. Uh, but I went to basic training with no rating. Um, and then from there, uh, I wound up having the opportunity to serve um, on active duty uh, as a member of the submarine community. Um, I also qualified Navy scuba diver training at uh, Panama City Beach, Florida. So I was a diver aboard submarines, which was uh, something unique. Right. You know, if you think of a submarine as almost like uh, the closest you can get to a spaceship uh, without leaving uh, the above <laughs> atmosphere, um, being a diver is the closest you can get to a spacewalk from, from that sort of vantage point uh, on submarines. And I really, I really enjoyed my time in the Navy, separated it in 2005. I tried my hat at a variety of things while finishing my associate's degree. Um, it used to be called Brevard Community College. It, it has since they offer bachelor's now and a master's or two. So they're called Eastern Florida State College now where I got my associate's degree. And honestly, I didn't get super involved with veterans when I was at community college. And like a lot of veterans at community college, I chose community college because it was right near where I lived. Admissions were much more straightforward. They're on a rolling basis. So right. I could go by at any time. Didn't require any admissions, uh, entrance exams, SAT, ACT, and the like. Um, and they offered me more credit for my military experience than any of the four-year institutions that I had talked to. Okay. Uh, so I viewed it as the, the way to sort of build up that academic transcript and then matriculate eventually into a four-year institution of higher learning. And you know, what's interesting, Luke, is that our generation of the post 9-11 era, if you follow them from the events of September 11th, 2001 to present, I keep saying that they're getting smarter and smarter, but that's mostly because the military is becoming more and more technically proficient. Right. Even from combat arms to nuclear engineers, uh, everything in between, we are having to choose from a more technically proficient, you know, civilian population to build the military. And the Department of Defense takes great care to try to ensure uh, that our forces are as representative of the people they serve. We haven't gotten there uh, with regard to women in our ranks, but it's growing each and every year. It's the quickest right. growing demographic. We've recently, due to uh, President Biden's executive order, uh, uh, rescinded the trans ban, uh, meaning that you know, however somebody identifies, they're welcome into the U.S. military and can serve. What a lot of people don't know is that the Department of Defense is one of the largest employers of trans people 
in the U.S., not just in the military, but also in the civilian positions uh, that, the, that the military uh, has available for folks. But as we start looking at it, um, for me, it was this notion that community college offered me a stepping stone. I, I wanted starting a business. Uh, I, I like to make the joke that I, I learned a lot in that process, Luke, which I believe is entrepreneurial code for I lost all my money. So I learned a lot. Um, and then from there, uh, I actually wound up in Major League Baseball. I served uh, for just over three years as the manager of Florida operations uh, for the Washington Nationals. So, you know, we were responsible for spring training, uh, minor league player development for the ball club. Uh, kind of a unique experience, uh, 2007 to 2010. You know, I'd wear the curly W, which is now well known because the Nationals are a World Series winning team again. Uh, I'd walk into a Walgreens and people would ask me where the toothpaste was, you know, because they would presume uh, that I that I worked there wearing wearing that logo. But great experience for a young guy. Uh, I learned a lot in that job. Honestly, I was underqualified for it, but I had great bosses. I mean, I really enjoyed my time in baseball. From there, I went to Florida State. Uh, so when I showed up to Florida State, I was a transfer junior with an associate's degree from a community college in the state. In the state of Florida, you know this, Luke, but I'm kind of a dummy. Uh, I didn't know this, but I applied to Florida State and I got an admissions decision almost within like like weeks. Right. Like you're in. In the state of Florida, if you achieve your associates at a state community college, you're guaranteed admission to one of the state universities in Florida. I applied to Florida State. When I got that acceptance, it might as well have said I got into Harvard. Uh, to me, it was my stretch school, it was my awesome. dream school. And it was incredible. I showed up as a 28-year-old transfer junior uh, in an environment of 40 plus thousand, what I felt were... Uh, younger people in my mind at that time, I was calling them children. And I, and I felt like a fish out of water. And I kept being struck with this feeling that even though I got in, even though I was there, uh, but that somehow one of these things was not like the other. And I felt it was me. I, I felt like I didn't belong. I felt like I didn't right. fit in. And, and not because I was a veteran, just simply because of my life experience up to that point. Sure, veteran is part of that. But also, I just was older, you know, and, right. and I recognize that this is a common feeling now uh, with a lot of adult learners. And as we start looking at it, I mean, by 2024, the majority of the country will be that our students will be adult learners. There'll be people over the right. age of 25 pursuing an education. And if we think that we've only got about 36% of Americans with a bachelor's degree or higher, the way that we are going to like bring America to be competitive in a global environment is through education. That's always been the answer. And there are a lot of Americans that have been left out of opportunity. And so my opportunity to higher education was the military, you know, and I was able to get really involved at Florida State, honestly, with my SVA chapter, because I was feeling like that fish out of water. So I showed up to my first SVA uh, chapter meeting. Honestly, I saw a little advertisement on campus that said, are you a veteran? This date, this time, in this room on campus, right? Okay. I'll be honest, Luke, I don't know that like I saw veterans so much as I did. Are you a grown up? Do you right. miss having grown up conversations with other grown ups? And I was like, I sure do. Yeah. So I, I rushed over to that meeting. Uh, you know, there was there was the three club officers plus the six other veterans who had seen uh, the same advertisement that I did. And that that led on a new journey because my first two weeks on campus, I, I wound up doing some deep reflection as to because I was thinking about quitting uh, my girlfriend at the time. She's my wife now mother of my kid, like, love that, love that woman. But Shayla and I were talking one night and she was like, you know, are you thinking about quitting? And honestly, Luke, I was, I, I was, in my first two weeks, I was like, I'm going to run back, see if I can get another back job back in baseball, do something else. And right. uh, 
she's like, you don't quit. I had one of those tough love conversations. I think we all need it one, one time or another in our lives. And so I, I did some reflection on like, what motivates me as a person? I've got to be able to answer that to know how, why I'm going to stay in college. And honestly, what I came up with was a simple answer that as a person, I'm motivated by how I can impact the most good. I'll be honest. I did not know what that meant at the time, but it was enough to help me get some sleep. It was that next morning that I saw the advertisement, are you a veteran in this room, this day, this time, this room, and I showed up to my SVA chapter meeting. Um, we got really involved on campus, uh, drafted a business plan that we presented to our university leadership to include uh, the university president at the time, Dr. Eric Barron, who's now the president of Penn State, um, as well as our board of trustees to build a world-class uh, veteran resource center to try to be supportive of all generations of veterans at Florida State, past, present, and future. That uh, eventually got me on the radar of SVA's uh, national team. I, I received uh, our highest individual honors as Student Veteran of the Year back in 2011. Awesome. I attended two NatCons as an undergrad. Um, and then when I, uh, it was through that network uh, that I met a guy named Dr. Randy Blass, who was an Air Force veteran, prior enlisted guy uh, who got picked up for the officer program did his uh, undergrad at the University of South Florida. Uh, he's a Florida boy, by the way. And then right. from there, active duty, eventually they sent him to get a PhD at Florida State. And then he was a professor at the Air Force Academy. He was Lieutenant Colonel uh, at the time, uh, Randy Blass. And he met a young guy uh, at the time named Captain uh, Mike Haney, who was teaching uh, with a master's at the Air Force Academy. They sent him to go get a, a PhD in Colorado. All that to say, Mike Haney is the guy who founded the Institute for Veterans and Military Families at Syracuse University. Okay. Randy made the introduction to Dr. Haney. Uh, Dr. Haney and I um, got, uh, you know, really good to know each other, but that almost didn't happen, Luke, because when uh, Dr. Haney asked me to apply for a full-time position at Syracuse University, I was in my last semester at Florida State, and the job description said, uh, bachelor's degree required, master's preferred. I almost didn't apply Dr. Blass comes up to me about three weeks later and goes, hey man, I, I, have you applied yet? And I was like, nah, it turns out I'm not eligible. He's like, what, what do you mean? And I was, I was like, I tell him, and he goes, ah, Jared, do you know that like when you're applying for a job in your last semester, you can put your anticipated graduation date and you can apply for jobs that require a bachelor's. And I was like, that seems nefarious. He's like, no, that's, that's the way it's done. Right. And so through a series of great mentors in my life, um, I've had the opportunity uh, to, to be exposed to things that I wouldn't have otherwise uh, and, and see things in myself uh, that they saw because I didn't see them at the beginning. So I, I got the job uh, as the national program manager uh, for the entrepreneurship bootcamp for veterans, uh, the EBV program. And I went up to Syracuse University helped manage the program at Syracuse, Cornell, Purdue, University of Connecticut, Louisiana State, Florida State, Texas A&M, and UCLA. So I got involved in academia almost by, by accident. Uh, I was an advocate as a student. I realized that if I wanted to be more of an advocate and impact the most good, I would need to, at minimum, uh, achieve a master's degree. I got into the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs through mentors, again, because I did not have the confidence to apply to that program when I got in sitting in orientation, I'm looking around Luke being like, one of these things is not like the other. Someone was asleep in admissions when I got in, uh, but I, I was able to achieve a, a master's in public administration. I started to teach as an adjunct on the Whitman School of Management, uh, teaching okay. a course called Introduction to Entrepreneurship and uh, Emerging Enterprises, the Triple E program at, at Syracuse Whitman School. Um, and then, you know, I got on the radar of SVA's headquarters team when they were looking to hire uh, somebody to help in development. I, I took that gig, did it for about two years, and then 
um, eventually uh, applied along with nearly 300 other candidates uh, to be our national president and CEO. And uh, I guess everyone else said no to the offer because they, they gave me the job back in uh, January of 2016. And I've honestly been uh, doing my dream job. I sit at the intersectionality between higher education, veterans transition, employment, and policy. And so when you look at all of those three things, what we're talking about is that transition from civilian to military, from military to veteran, from veteran to successful civilian life. Um, and that's where I get to live and breathe each and every day. So that was probably a way longer answer to your question. But that's no, no, that's great. And, you know, you hit on a few things. And I think what's beautiful is, is to say where you are now through this whole journey of life. You know, if we take it back to you, you starting in the Navy and then all the way up to all of your experiences, when you got out and you transitioned, even through your doubts and, and having to sit down and talk to your wife, uh, exploiting opportunities that someone was presenting to you that you might not have realized at the time, all of these things add up and the type of education you had and, and your experience as an entrepreneur, that all makes sense to me to see you in this position now. You know, uh, it, you understand what, students are going through. You understand what more of our adult learner population is going through. You understand uh, what it takes for the business side. You understand what makes good policy. Uh, and, and that's amazing. Uh, I, I could see exactly, even if your ladder wasn't straight, uh, how not. all these things definitely lend, lend to you in this position and, and doing a great job in this position. So Jared, I do have one question about your um, transition to, to higher education because you, you, know, you mentioned it, you talk about where you've gone and what you've done. Uh, one thing I'm curious, did you have an opportunity at all in the Navy to take any type of classes? Yeah, I did. Um, okay. uh, you know, I, I feel really fortunate. Um, back then they were all co correspondence classes, um, okay. you know, so like you sign up for the course uh, using tuition assistance, uh, an amazing benefit that the active duty military provides to active duty soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines um, to be able to pursue uh, education goals. Um, you know, you're causing me on the spot to sort of think back. I, I probably took three or four classes. I, I can't okay. totally recall, um, but yeah, through, uh, through correspondence courses. So like, you know, um, even when you take your tests, they were proctored by somebody who was certified as a proctor on active duty uh, and then you sort of mail everything back and wait for your grades uh, on your transcript. So I did separate from active duty with probably, you know, nine or 12 uh, transferable college credits uh, that I had done from some correspondence courses. Um, but that, that was it. Okay. That's very interesting, you know, because doing these interviews, we have a whole hodgepodge of answers. A lot of people took advantage of TA some didn't, some couldn't, you know, some were like, oh, our chain of command said absolutely not. Uh, so it's always interesting to hear someone's answers. Now, when you went back to do your associates, did you have any idea what you eventually wanted to major in for your bachelor's? Or were you just like, I'm going to go, you know, see how it is and then go forward? Yeah. It, so, I mean, the, the answer is yes. The reason I'm hesitating in it is that like, I honestly didn't know what I didn't know. So, um, you know, I, right. I sort of thought, yeah, uh, business because I've done business uh, or I'm doing business or I'm interested in business, whatever right. that means to me at the time. Um, and, and then 
when I was finishing my associates, I thought I had narrowed it down uh, to wanting to ultimately go to law school. Um, for me, uh, by the time I got to my undergrad, uh, I had originally, um, uh, because you know, when you use your GI Bill, it's, it, it's really the equivalent of declaring your major in your first semester of turning your GI Bill on, which I still think is a really weird thing that we do to veterans and sort of don't allow for that sort of academic exploration uh, that every you know, 120 credit bachelor's degree allows for. Veterans often uh, are not subject to that, which leads to an interesting phenomenon amongst veterans. Veterans on average will change their majors 2.3 times before they graduate compared to civilians, which is a lot closer to about like 1.7 times. And so veterans are more likely than their civilian counterparts to change their majors. Also nearly two thirds of us are just like me, a first generation college student. And most first gen college students are basically figuring college out as they go. And so right. that exploration is really important but for veterans, we're older when we start our education, especially at the undergrad uh, level, and we're in a hurry. And so we've got these blinders on that my full-time job is to get my degree. So how many credits can you give me from my military time, other classes I took before the military or while I was on uh, active duty or in the Guard or Reserve? Like I'm in a rush. And so as a result, we preclude ourselves from the academic exploration. The truth is, Lou, we do it anyway. Um, even though we're in a rush, we wind up changing our majors. And we know that every time a student changes their major, on average, it adds about a year to graduation. So for a group of adult learners who are in a huge rush, who are changing their majors because they're like the GI Bill is structured in such a way that we have to ostensibly declare our major early, I was no different. So I started in political science because I thought that's a good degree for law school, not based on any advisement, just literally winging it, right? right, right. And uh, very quickly, one of my introductory courses I took was taught by um, one of the assistant state's attorneys general in Tallahassee. I mean, the beauty of Florida State is it's in Tallahassee, the capital of Florida. Right. And so uh, I take this course by a lawyer. It's supposed to sort of replicate in some ways. It doesn't really, but it gives you the exposure into classes what your first year of law school would be like. And I very quickly realized, and this might sound silly, but it was helpful. College was helpful. I realized I did not want to interpret or enforce law. I wanted the ability to make law. And you don't need a law degree to make law. You need a right. law degree to interpret law um, and any of the various uh, arrays of it. And so for me, I, I became more interested in the policy side. I thought you needed a law degree, which would have been helpful in all honesty, uh, now that I do this for a living. But, um, but so... That, that meant changing perhaps my major. And since I had already racked up some credits in political science, I was looking for something that I could finish taking into account. I'm a very eat your broccoli first, um, so eat your vegetables first. So I took all my math and statistics courses for my bachelor's in science and political science. I was able to shift those to a bachelor's in science and social science, giving me credit for those poli-sci uh, you know, statistics and math courses, and being able to apply them with a bit more of the sociology um, and history sides of things that I was interested in and sort of craft my own bachelor's degree. Um, but yeah, I had, no, I, I had an idea when I started my associates. It kept changing as I, as I went until I kind of refined it. That's so interesting. So, you know, one of the things I think personally that I can identify with is that you use the word rushed, right? And I always try to explain people this. When I started my bachelor's, that's what I always felt behind, you mm. know? And so to yeah. hear you say that, uh, I, I felt like I had to rush. I was like, I need to load up every hour I can take during the semesters. I need to go take summer hours. If there's winter intercession, I need to take those. So it's so interesting to hear you say that because I, I can empathize with 
exactly that feeling and those words. But we think of ourselves not as veterans when we're making these decisions, right? We think of ourselves as students. Right. And that's one of the things that we think is so key about uh, referencing student veteran. It's like student athlete. We're, we're there in college to be students, right. not to be veterans, not to be military connected. We're, we're there as students. And as students, right, you start quickly making that, that comparison to other students and to other people your own age. And you start realizing very quickly that like when I'm starting college at 28, most people of my age, if they pursued education, have already finished a master's. And right. I, I barely have my associates and I'm a junior. I'm in a hurry. I'm rushed. I'm trying to get this done as quickly as I can. I, I can totally relate. And it's common for so many uh, veterans that, that make that transition from the military through post-secondary education as students on to whatever they're going to do next. You feel behind because you compare yourself to people your age and go, oh my goodness, I'm just an undergrad and people my age that I went to high school with already, already have their master's done or you know, they're on their way towards a doctorate or a, a law degree or whatever it might be. You know? Right, right, absolutely. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. And I think, I think what another exciting aspect of what you just said is the fact that you're like, I had an idea, but you were open, right? You were open and that yeah. is what led you. And I think that's vitally important, you know, for the, for the student, for, for the guy and gal who are, are having to sit down with their wife or their husband or whomever and have a conversation of, do I need to be in college? I don't know what I want to do. Um, I, I think what you just spoke to could really help a lot of people out. It's that being open, uh, being open to feedback, you know, you mentioned you had some good mentors along the way. And, and sometimes, and I've experienced, and you've said it in this podcast, sometimes people see things in us that are very positive that we don't see in ourselves. And we got to take that leap of faith and trust, right? And trust that they've got some insight and, and go through those actions and then let our insight catch up to their insight. So I'm so glad that you said that because... Uh, being open to the possibilities is is one of those things that you're not going to get on a on a university academic brochure, you know. Luke, it's the thing. It's you know, if if I if I have one criticism of uh, your service in the military before higher education, um, it's that it prepares us for the straight line, right? The military is one of the most efficient bureaucracies in the U.S. government, right? And absolutely. so there there is legitimately a path to go from you know. E1, brand new in the military, to a four-star general or admiral. There is a path. I'm not suggestive it's easy. I'm not suggestive that it's like everyone can do it, but there is a path to go from E1 to four-star. There is a path. There is not a path that J.P. Morgan chased to go from bank teller to the CEO of the firm, right? There are all of these roads that we take that move around. And the challenge is, especially as veterans, when we start thinking about school, we think about it in the military context, right? Like before you could be a Marine, you had to go to boot camp. And then before you could do your job in the Marine Corps, you went to an initial school. And then maybe later you were going to be a couch for more responsibility. So there was a leadership school you'd go to or a change in your job responsibility. So you went to the school and we equate going to the school. I do the thing. So before I could be on submarines, I went to basic enlisted submarine school. Before I could be a diver, I went to dive school. And when I got back, I could now be a diver in the fleet, right? Like these are things that we think this banned. So in higher education decisions for student veterans, at the onset of that decision, 
It's like, put the blinders on, go to college, take all my classes, get fantastic grades, which most student veterans do. They have higher GPAs than their civilian counterparts, right. graduate, then get the job. And what we, we, we sort of fail to understand in that is, is this notion of networking, of building mentors, of having conversations with peers, even if those peers are 10 years younger than you, right? Like who are their moms and dads? Who are their aunts and uncles? Who are their friends that might have an interest area aligning with totally your career? And often we want that, that idea of a meritocracy as veterans, that like, I do good, I get promoted. I do good, I get the next job. Right. And so I'm gonna earn it is what a lot of student veterans say. Like, I'm not here for that, you know, brown nosing kind of stuff. I'm here to get my education and go. And what we don't realize is that like, actually the military, we totally networked, right? Try, try to find batteries for night vision goggles, right? right? If you need to, like in the military, we're constantly networking and networking is a series of conversations and relationships to help others. It winds up helping you, but like, it's not a nefarious thing to network and to seek mentorship and to mentor others. And the civilian world through higher education does a wonderful job of that. And Luke, I don't mean to sound disrespectful when I say this, sometimes academics get mad at me, but you know, for a student veteran, higher ed is 40% classroom and 60% everything else. And unfortunately as veterans, when we become students, as student veterans, we, we are robbing ourselves of the 60% that higher ed has. We go to class, we're diligent in our grades, we're great on group projects. We get all the things done to get a nice piece of paper that we put in a great frame and hang on our walls, right? We do that and we do it well, but we start like not feeling like we're connected to that campus community. We feel like we're in a rush or that we're behind our peers. And so we run through it and we don't meet the Lukes on campus. We don't meet the Dr. Blasses. Um, we don't have those conversations outside the classroom that lead to somebody seeing something in ourselves that we don't, we'll never see in ourselves and exposing us to opportunities that can move us to those next things. And so all the way back to Harry Double Comary, right? When Comary was looking at it, we're trying to restore people to that economic opportunity as quickly as possible. Part of that as student veterans means engaging in campus and it's hard. Most of us are parents when we go back to school. Most of us are in committed relationships when we go back to school. A lot of us are single parents. 52% of us are married with kids. Another 20% identify as single parents. Like we're grownups with grown-up responsibilities when we go back to school. And it's easy to say, I don't have time to do those things. But we have to find a way to make some of that time because that everything else, that 60% of your higher ed experience means mentorship. It means networking. It means relationships with your traditional student peers. It means helping to bridge the civilian military divide. And it means exposing yourself and others that you know to opportunity that will lead to better outcomes for yourself and your family. And so that everything else is actually, you know, this really beautiful part about a post-secondary experience and looking for ways to do it. Whether you go to school in person or online, there are ways to do it. But I think as veterans, nobody sits us down and and explains how important that everything else is. We view it as fluff, as extra, as like, eh, it'd be nice if I had time, but man, I'm gonna get that degree and then just get out of here as quick as I can because I'm in a rush, I'm behind. If we found a way to get involved, it, it opens ourselves up to nearly everything else. And it's what, what others are doing that, honestly, it's not just a student veteran challenge, it's a uh, post-traditional student adult learner challenge as well. Right, 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 absolutely. Well, like you mentioned before, you know, the, the things that student veterans really need on campuses are the things that adult learners need, you know, so that, that makes so much sense and it's so true. So let me ask you, Jared, 
your current position and your time in the Navy, if you had to sit back and tell us how your time in the Navy directly informed what you're doing now, what would you say? You know, I've been asked this question over the years and Luke, I I think it evolves, right? My answer to that question evolves. Um, You know, what I I do now uh, in some ways is is completely different than what I did in the military and in other ways is pretty similar. So to sort of couch my own experience and some of the aggregated data, uh, what we know is that the vast majority of veterans do something post-military. It's like 87% of us do something post-military that has little or nothing to do with what we did in the military. Right. This goes back to the notion of, you know, when you went down and talked to the recruiter, it is the difference between a wartime generation and a peacetime. When I, in peacetime, went down in August of 2001 to chat with that recruiter, you know, my conversation was, what do you want to do? You know, like, what, what are some of the ideas, et cetera? Right. You know, the conversation in a, uh, a wartime generation at the recruiter is similar, right? Recruiters are always going to have a conversation about all the opportunities that their branch can provide to you. Uh, but what's interesting is when you study that in the post 9-11 era, the wartime generation who enlisted uh, after the events of September 11th, um, their number one choice of their job in the military was not motivated by what they wanted to do when they separated. It was motivated by their ship date to basic training. Our generation wanted to get in the fight as quick as it could, whatever that meant. And so, yes, the perfect job might have been totally available to us based on our scores and our qualifications, but you didn't ship for basic training uh, for eight months, which sounds like an eternity to a 17, 18, 19, yeah, right, 20 year right? right? Exactly. And so you're like, geez, do you have any, anything that ships sooner? Oh, well, this job is, is similar to the job, your, your dream job, but it's, you know, so our generation serves. We serve in the military. We didn't go into the military for necessarily um, a job and training that would lead to something. And if we know that near number one motivation is the opportunity for an education, you know, it's understandable that that's, you know, if we go to, into the military, we're going to serve in whatever way we're asked to, we'll do our time and then separate go to college and go on to the rest of our lives. But if I think about what the Navy has done for me, ultimately, I think what the Navy did for me more than anything else are the two communities I was part of in the submarine community and the dive community. It's, um, you know, it's the ability to make decisions and to plan contingencies. Those are two things that like, honestly, Luke, I look at my daily life and not just in my career, but in my life, those two things have held for me as, is almost just like, mindsets that uh, keep me on track towards any of my goals, whether those are the goals I've set for the organization that I lead, whether those are goals that I set for my, my wife and my child um, and our relationship, however you look at it, like the ability to make a decision, you start to realize is something that the modern employers in some of the biggest organizations in the country, they cite with new hires that's one of the biggest challenges that they have are folks that have the ability to make a decision. And what, what do we all know? I mean, 70, 80% today is better than 100% never. I take into account everything before me and I will make a decision. It may not be right, but I'll make a decision, move forward, learn from it and adapt that decision as I go. Um, the contingency side of things, right, is like, you know, a submarine is literally a ship that sinks by design. And so everything about a submarine has a backup to the backup. And so if you sort of think about anything that you approach, 
what it does is it shifts a mindset that's like, okay, I understand what the plan is. I know my left and right limits and I know the direction that we're ultimately we're heading and I've planned it accordingly. But what if that plan changes? What is my backup to that backup to know where I am? So the plan, a backup and a backup, right? right. So the backup to the backup. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel that that's just been a, a very helpful thought process that honestly, I think I've done subconsciously uh, ever since I got out of the military. I've only become a little bit more conscious of it now that I'm in the, the stage of my career where we're setting three and five year strategic goals and, and writing those longer term business plans. And I'm, I'm realizing that like, wow, that thing I learned how to do at 19 and 20, I'm still doing. And it's like, it's very helpful to the way that I'm, I'm sort of just, I guess, living my life. So I, I would say that that was something uh, that the Navy did for me almost through osmosis. I didn't even know that it was, it, it was doing it. And like, I knew it was doing it to make me good at my job in the Navy. Right. I didn't realize that it was going to be so beneficial to me as just a mindset as I moved forward. You know, the last thing that I'd say is it's like my exposure to uh, training operations and deployments in the Navy has taught me one thing about myself, that I, I've been the dumbest guy in rooms full of smart people my entire adult life. Uh, the Navy definitely humbled me in that way. But it also demonstrated that like, if given the chance, there's nothing I can't accomplish through enough planning and understanding. And, um, you know, I'm a, I'm, a somewhat not super confident human, um, but that level of confidence is like even in dire times or solving difficult problems, I know if given enough of an opportunity, I can probably achieve it. And so uh, I don't think I would have had that without without my time in the military. And so I'd, I'd say that the combination of those three things, what I gained from the Navy that has helped me today. That's awesome. I wish I had a megaphone for that uh, that part right there. Because there's so much, there's absolutely so much. And if, if people, right, no matter what their confidence level are, if they take experiences like you've had and learned from that, given enough things, we, we absolutely can accomplish anything. And it's, it's about having that uh, goal, that drive, that perseverance and resiliency to just keep going or finding ways to. Well, Luke, it's that, it's that point of resiliency. Right. If you talk to uh, college uh, administrators, like, you know, college presidents, provosts across the country, in their uh, uh, typical aged undergraduate students, one of the biggest challenges that they are understanding right now is it's the absence of resilience in the population is making it difficult for them to be able to deliver on some of the outcomes of a post-secondary, at least undergraduate, both education and experience. And you know, one of the things about adding more student veterans to your student body is you're injecting resilience right. and you're injecting this population that like, you know, whenever I have the opportunity to chat with student veterans, I love seeing them exude their leadership, but I also love that opportunity to say that like, hey gang, listen, when we are student veterans in higher ed, we have an opportunity in front of us. I dare near say that it's a obligation. This is the first time in American history that only one in three college students say that they know a veteran. And if we think about this broader concept of, this is the smallest military that we've ever had, that has also been fighting the longest period of sustained combat in our nation's history. Absolutely. Uh, Secretary Mattis used to describe it as, this is the most lethal fighting force for freedom and democracy the world has ever known. We'll use a business term for lethal. It's efficient, right? And efficient in, in business speak, means that you don't need more employees, you need less. And so this is a US armed forces that is reliant on technology and masters of technology 
in ways that almost no other fighting force in the world can do. And so we can outfight nearly any enemy on a battlefield, no matter what that battlefield looks like, to even include space now, right? And so when we look at this from that vantage point, what we understand is that this is a population that can do so much, but as we sort of move it forward, it's this notion of um, finding ways to connect with the student body on campus because we are having an opportunity to let them now know a veteran. That's the opportunity and the obligation. If they know us, they're not reliant on what they saw in a movie or maybe what they caught in a news article. They know Luke, they know Jared, they know a veteran in their class and they're like, hey, I, I heard something stereotypical, but like, I know 10 veterans from like my undergrad at St. Uh, Leo. They're great humans. They're awesome students. They're, I, I, they're my friends. I know them. In addition, what we have is this, this like great ability to, while closing that civilian military divide, we have the opportunity to have people know us and not just other us to the point that they know about us. Knowing us is really important. And so that opportunity to get involved is helpful on the resiliency side for leaders in higher education. One thing that I can say is the majority of veterans, both of you and I were talking earlier, um, the highest rank each of us achieved in the military we were enlisted was E5. Right. When you're at E5, you're managing at least one person and often more than one uh, person's. In the civilian world, most people are in their mid-30s before they're managing more than six people. And that's just sort of table stakes for the population of student veterans on your campus. And as a student veteran, you might feel like you're a little older than your undergraduate counterparts, but think back to who you were phenomenal at managing, 17, 18, 19, 20-year-olds. Who is the big population on campus? Like, we've already done this, right? We have the opportunity to continue to lead on campus um, in that way, close the civilian military divide, and inject a sense of resiliency among the undergraduate student population um, that is, is really a challenge for leaders in higher education right now. I love it. I love it. I'm not even gonna, I'm not even gonna muddy those waters with any comments. We're gonna leave it right there. It's outstanding. So let me ask you, Jared, I usually get to the point, I ask someone at this, at this part when we're wrapping up, you know, tell us about some projects you're working on currently. And I wanna ask you that, however, I also want to add a question. So I want you to, to tell us some about some of the work you've got going on currently or you're going to have in the future, because we would like to share that with people in the future. But I also want you to tell us what you see for student veterans in the future. So um, like way to make it a real like a succinct uh, uh, thing to answer. So it's such a big question, right? Um, Luke, I, I could probably couch it in three different ways. And so, you know, what we see for student veterans, what we've got on the horizon um, as, as a national headquarters of Student Veterans of America, and then sort of like big idea. Um, and so really, I, I'll, I'll kind of start with the middle and then move my way to the edges. So as, as SVA's national headquarters, when we look across the national network um, of SVA chapters, we, at our core, are a student organization. So we are a student-centric, chapter-based organization. Uh, no different than uh, perhaps an honor society or um, uh, you know, uh, a sorority. Uh, you know, any way that you slice it, we're a student organization delivering a student experience. And what we have the opportunity to do is, is we're rare in that we are mostly an adult learner student organization uh, that is made up of veterans to serve our sisters and brothers in arms in the context of higher education. 
And so we're unique in that way, but we're also relatively young. Uh, compare Student Veterans of America as a 13-year-old organization um, to, you know, you name it, student organization. Some of these student organizations are well over 100 years old. They've, right. they've had a long time to sort of figure this out. And so most of those organizations um, in higher ed as student organizations don't resemble themselves today um, until about 40 years into their creation. So at 13 years, I think that we can sort of like half that. So that by that, that sort of like 20 years in our existence, only seven years out in our future, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that we want to expand chapters as an organization. I, I, I call that breadth. If you look at it on its face of number of chapters, we're one of the largest student organizations in America. People often raise an eyebrow that a group that serves veterans in higher ed would be among the largest student organizations. Because wait, what do you mean? Veterans go to college? Um, but uh, it's, it's not so much about adding more breadth, although... Any, anyone that doesn't have an SVA chapter on their campus is welcome to go to studentveterans.org and become a chapter. Our chapters affiliate with the national network. So anyone can do that. But it's not, it's, it's not so much to have more breadth, it's to add depth to the breadth that we have. And that really comes down to our ability to make sure that our chapters um, have the training and access to resources to provide um, a consistent uh, or a, a consistent experience at the chapter level um, nationwide. And we've got to uh, better have access to training, better access to data and research so that we can provide more salient opportunities and resources to our chapter leaders to deliver that experience. Because the SVA experience doesn't happen at headquarters in DC. It happens at each of our chapters, which is literally at the campus level. And that's the power of our organization. So it's adding depth to the organization over the next seven years through more training, more access to resources, more opportunities, and more research. Now, to, to sort of go on like the uh, big idea, because then I'll, I'll end with um, what's the future for student veterans, because I think right. it'll all make sense. So the big idea, I, I think you know this, but our organization um, is, is an advocacy organization as well. So we take the voices of student veterans and made sure that they're uh, heard on Capitol Hill. We started doing that in 2008. We, we weren't very loud and many people didn't hear us. That's not the case anymore. You know, Student right. Veterans of America is an incredibly influential organization and our government affairs team um, is, is well-respected and works so increasingly well with some of the legacy veteran organizations, the, the big ones that you know, the Veterans of Foreign Wars, the American Legion, um, Disabled American Veterans, AMVETS, Paralyzed Veterans of America, and Vietnam Veterans of America. We're working right alongside them. They mentor us constantly. We bring new ideas. But as we sort of start looking at that, uh, we've, we've kind of made a realization. Every year as a country, we make about 200,000 veterans every year. Approximately 115,000 of them are in a college classroom within seven months of separating from active duty. Said another way, the most common thing that a transitioning service member will do is go to college using the GI Bill. If that's the case, and we start thinking about the GI Bill, all the way back to Harry W. Comary's original intent of adding education to the GI Bill, what we have an opportunity to do is to close the opportunity gap. What we can do is accelerate a veteran to where they would have been had they never volunteered to serve their country through the power, the transitional power, the transcendent power of post-secondary education. And the way that we start looking at that is we start uh, looking at any myriad of issues within the veteran community and the VA, as large as it is, 
um, can't reach every veteran living in the United States. The, the VA and their total database is just over 9 million veterans. And there's just, just a little over 19 million veterans that are alive. And so we're not even reaching half, right? And anytime we hear about a challenge in the veteran community, we're spending billions of dollars a year as, as a VA. But one of the things that is understandably absent is that you know new veterans or quote unquote young veterans just aren't really engaged with the VA. So the VA can't right. provide them help. But if we think about this for a second, I just said over, over half of all transitioning service members, 115,000 of 200 are in a college classroom in seven months and they're using the GI Bill. Their interaction with the, with the, with the Department of Veterans Affairs is literally, it starts with the GI Bill. Depending on how we shape that experience, we can provide access to services, supporting services, and, and help however a veteran may need it if we start treating the GI Bill as the front door to the VA. And if we do it right, we can ensure that the VA will that for all future generations of veterans because they're going to go through higher education. And if we embrace that concept, if we know it's going to happen, we can have that front door be an open one uh, to veterans through this concept that the GI Bill is literally the front door to the VA. And then where, where do I see veterans? Uh, over the next 20 years, I see student veterans becoming more integrated. And honestly, uh, Luke, it's a lot through your work. A mentor of mine is uh, uh, a, a really wonderful guy, Dr. Mel Stith. At, uh, I met him at Syracuse, but much like me, uh, he was from Florida State uh, to Syracuse, but he was actually Syracuse to Florida State, back to Syracuse. So he was the dean of the business school at Florida State and then became the dean of the business school at Syracuse. I got to know him when I was uh, at Syracuse University. Uh, Mel, a Vietnam veteran himself, uh, served in the army. But Mel is this incredible idea uh, that he planted in my head about access and representation. So Mel, as a black man, as an academic, uh, pursuing a doctorate, um, you know, coming home from Vietnam, you, know, you think back to the 60s and the 70s, African-Americans weren't as represented in post-secondary education. Fast forward today at the undergraduate level, African-Americans make up nearly 15% of our undergraduate population. Well, comparatively, at 13.4% of society, African-Americans are actually slightly overrepresented in post-secondary education and growing, as right they should. But if you're growing in higher ed, but you don't see yourself in higher ed, and this is, this is what happened for Mel, he never saw a pathway to the professoriate for himself as a black man in the 60s and 70s until he had mentors grab a hold of him and show him what he might not have seen in himself, right. making sure that when he achieved his doctorate and, and started in the path of the professoriate, other black people would see him as well and know that they could do it. Well, I am inspired by that to sort of look at this notion that we can see more veterans in all shapes and sizes, all eras of their service, not just post 9-11, but as we start seeing them in higher education, and there are a lot of them, many of them just aren't currently identifying as right. veterans. And that's okay if they're willing to self-report uh, that they're a veteran and show that notion as part of their narrative during syllabus week. Traditional students can see that, wow, I'm learning from a veteran who's a really smart and awesome professor. She's my favorite professor, and she's a Marine. How cool is that? Right. Um, but it's also for that veteran who's sitting in the front of class who maybe hasn't identified as a veteran and goes, oh my goodness, my professor, she's a Marine. Hey, I was a Marine too. And maybe that shows up in office hours. And it, it, it provides that notion that 
wait, I can see myself because business, STEM, technology, um, uh, health-related fields, these are really important things to teach in as well. And so as we increase veteran representation in uh, our careers, we also can see ourselves in the careers of post-secondary education. And the more that we can attract veterans to those opportunities to find their own pathway to the professoriate, we can find that representation in post-secondary education, helping to bridge the civilian military divide and inspire more veterans to pursue their doctorates and work in higher ed. But I see this across the board, Luke, that over the next 20 years, we might have the opportunity to go back to something I said at the beginning of our chat today. Most Americans don't believe that most veterans have graduated high school. That's right. Most Americans believe that most veterans are not successful in their post-military transition. And unfortunately, veterans, 54% of us believe the same. Over the next 20 years, through our actions, through our inclusive opportunities to, to bring more people into conversations who might be veterans and non-veterans alike to get to know each other over the next 20 years. And I've already seen the shift over the past 10 years, but over the next 20 years, we will shift society's perception of what it means to serve your country. And maybe not even just in the military, but volunteering uh, in, in any way that that might look like. And I think that we have the opportunity to ensure that when we look at surveys, they demonstrate that when you're on active duty, it's one of the most trusted professions in the country. And yet once you take that uniform off, society believes there's something wrong with you. Over the next 20 years, we will match those two perceptions such that we can harness the leadership and resilient characteristics that exist amongst veterans to go on and see veterans continuing to solve complex problems that society will always continue to face. And if you look at the history of America from our, our original American revolution to present day, educated veterans have always been in positions where they can help society solve complex problems. I think Washington said it best when he said that we did, when we gained the soldier, we did not give up the citizen, right? In our modern all volunteer force, we have the potential to shift society's perception of what it means to serve. And really as student veterans, we are quite literally the ambassadors of that all volunteer force to move our country forward and to be the leaders with resiliency to solve complex problems as our country faces it. I absolutely love it. And it's there. The history is there. The examples are there. The individuals are there. The qualitative data is there. The quantitative data is there. Everything in between. And you're right. As, as, as we as a population start matching what's actually happening and what we're actually achieving and, and, and talking about it and perpetuating those instead of perpetuating the things that... Uh, civil society or other groups have taken and twisted, then exactly right. We're, we're gonna not only show what's honestly and truthfully happening, but pave the way for more of that to continue and to grow for future generations. And in what I've mentioned in academia, even in the arts, right? The more veteran representation we have, the more accurate portrayals that we have of the full lived experience of these individuals. We have to look at the veteran as the whole person. And when we look at the whole person, we understand all the various attributes and identities that they're bringing to the table. And our work, Luke, is to meet that whole person where they are and make sure that we expose them to the opportunities such that they can see in themselves what you and I see in them through the aggregated data, through the qualitative and quantitative research, to be able to show them that they are the leaders our country needs 
and to inspire them to give. I absolutely love it. That's, that's where we need to end because not only do they need to listen to this podcast, but I need to find a way to, to put it on the rooftops and have the masses hear this, you know, the, the student veterans, the people in higher education, the, the civilians, the, and everyone in between uh, just absolutely have to hear this episode. So ladies and gentlemen, I'm Dr. Luke McLeish, your host of Veterans and Academics. Today, as you've been hearing, we have been blessed uh, with Jared Lyon, the president and CEO of Student Veterans of America. And this has just an, been an incredible episode. So please subscribe, download this episode. You're going to want to keep it. You're going to want to listen to it again and refer back to it because there's lots of things that you can re-listen to. Jared, sir, I really appreciate your time, all of your insight, and I, I just want to personally thank you for everything you're doing for all of our brothers and sisters and, and, and the public at large. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, Luke, thanks, brother. Um, I, it's kind of you to say, but honestly, I'd, I'd love to just throw a thanks back at you um, for everything that you're doing to continue to lead uh, in our community and make sure that we're exposing more veterans to opportunities uh, so that they can achieve what we know they're capable of. Absolutely. It's, it's my pleasure. And part of it is meeting people like yourself who are humble enough to say those things, uh, but are actually the ones out there kicking butt every day. So ladies and gentlemen, this has been another episode of Veterans and Academics. We thank you for listening. And until next time, I'm Dr. Luke McLeese, and I have been with Mr. Jared Lyon, the president and CEO of Student Veterans of America. Thank you very much. We thank all of you for listening. Veterans in Academics is an all-veteran production of Freedom and Prosperity Think Tank. Content creation is brought to you by Dr. Luke McLeese and Dr. Michael Bevers. Web development is by Osvaldo Vargas.